Welcome to You Don't Have to Yell, episode two. I'm your host, Dan Sally. Our last episode featured Professor K. Scott Wong of Williams College, and he talked about some of the challenges uh, Chinese immigrants faced in the mid-1800s, both in discrimination by local white Americans and also in the form of specific laws that excluded them from becoming citizens. And uh, what I found interesting about that conversation was the way the Chinese were very much singled out for their cultural differences. So for part two, I wanted to focus on one of the groups that's been singled out in today's immigration conversation, specifically Latinos, folks coming over from Latin America. So I invited David, who's someone I've known for a long time, to tell his story about coming up here from Colombia with his mom when he was eight years old. Now, what I didn't know prior to recording this episode is that he and his mom spent the first 10 years of their time in the U.S. as undocumented immigrants and only gained citizenship about five years ago. Now, be warned, the audio in this sucks. You've got my kids yelling in the background at times. It sounds like David's got a dog with him or he's operating some weird squeaky pulley device, but the conversation was really too good not to put out there, and I felt we'd miss something if we re-recorded it. So I'm presenting it to you, warts and all, and you'll have to forgive me for that. Now, coincidentally, I'm releasing this episode less than a week from the day a man drove 10 hours to El Paso, Texas, with the sole purpose of killing Mexicans. And it's something he said he did in response to the quote-unquote Hispanic invasion of this country. So as you're listening to this episode... I want you to keep the way the shooter in El Paso viewed people migrating here from Latin America and really the way the media often portrays immigrants from Latin America, specifically undocumented immigrants. And I'd like you to think about how Dave and his mom stack up against this image. Uh, I'll be back after this interview with some additional commentary, but without further ado, here's Dave. Thanks for taking the time to speak. You know, obviously I've seen some of the stuff you shared on Facebook. I know about your history. And so I was I'm really interested in just letting everyone in on your story here. And, and I appreciate that, Dan. I'm, I'm really excited that A, you're doing this to begin with. Mm-hmm. And B, I think, I think it adds a lot of color to the reality of what it is to be an immigrant in the U.S. I think a lot of people have misconceptions about what it means to be an immigrant and how you end up here. So any, I'm, I'm happy to share my story with anyone who, who will listen. So thank you. Yeah, no worries. No worries. And I guess with that being said, why don't you give us all your story to start? Because it's, it's a little different than I think what people typically think. Yeah, so, uh, so I grew up in Colombia and I grew up in, in a pretty okay like you know we're not we weren't we weren't rich but we weren't poor we were kind of like a good medium household income type of business or sorry uh, family until my mom lost her job in, in around 1997 and she's a really educated woman she was working at a bank uh, in Colombia and that bank got acquired by a Spanish bank and with any acquisition there comes a lot of layoffs so my mom got laid off and she had a pretty good role she was doing auditing and she had a master in finances, she led a team, and she found herself without options. So for about two years, or maybe probably a little more, she kept going on job interview to job interview, and she would hear things like, oh, uh, sorry, we can't hire you, you're too expensive, or oh, hey, like your experience is really valuable, but it's not something we read it out. And the reason that was happening was 
in that time, Colombia is going through really bad recession, as was the bulk of Latin America. Uh, a lot of people think like the early thousands for the dot com bubble was was difficult. Like that recession was a long time coming. Like it had already hit the outside world um, by the time it got to the U.S. Something very similar to like the mortgage crisis that back in 2008 that had already kind of happened in Latin America. So we're in this spot where her mortgage just kept getting more expensive. Uh, she didn't have a job, and we were basically living off her savings for two years. My my parents got separated when I was very young, so my dad was kind of out of the picture pretty early on. So my mom's is is it's now 1999, and she's she has a decision to make, and that's do we live off savings and probably hold off for a year or two more, or does she try to emigrate to a different country? And she chose the the latter. We we moved to the U.S. in 1999. We had tourist visas. Uh, we had visas that allowed us to stay in the U.S. for six months, and we landed August 2nd, 1999 in Miami, Florida, and, uh, and we stayed. We just overstayed our, our visa limitation, and seven months later, here we are. It's, 2000, it's the year 2000 in January, and all of a sudden, I'm an illegal immigrant, which, uh, which was something that I was not expecting to grow up with, <laughs> which is why I prefer undocumented. Undocumented just sounds so much better. Yeah, um, but but yeah, and, and that's how the story began. You know, we moved uh, to two thousand here in, like I said, nineteen ninety nine, uh, Miami. Um, had a couple pretty bad experiences with people. You know, like ripping my mom off. Like one of the first things that happened when we got here was someone said, "Oh, you're gonna need a car. Have a great car." This person ended up taking. Uh, I think my mom. I don't. I have no idea how much she actually brought in cash, but uh, he ended up charging her like. $1,500 for this really beat up, I don't even know what it was, maybe Corolla. And then in the middle of the night, kind of went it back in and stole the car. Like we had no one to go to turn to, you know? Yeah. Because uh, we, like, my mom was like, she bought the car. The car was just parked there because then they got, the, the gentleman removed the license plates. There was no insurance on the car. So my mom's looking at it. She goes, okay, we bought the car, but I don't have insurance. I don't have uh, really a driver's license yet. Uh, what do we do? The guy took the car back and we were without a car and missing like 1500 bucks. Turns out my mom had some family, um, just cousins of hers that had moved to the U S during the seventies and eighties. Uh, and some of them were actually lived in New York and, and one of her cousins lived in New Jersey. So after hearing that all this had happened to my mom, her cousin in New Jersey goes, Hey, why don't you come up, live with me? I have daughter who was about two years younger than me she was you can stay with us for a while why don't you come up to new jersey so we moved from miami florida to branchburg new jersey lived with them for a few months and then kind of went on our own but yeah so that's basically the, the start of my my life in the u.s you know i uh, learned very quickly that, that things were a lot more difficult than, than you would expect and just little things i remember my mom had started again super educated woman I think she she spent a lot of her adult life in, in just like learning and just she loves to read, you know, so she was always challenging herself to read some more. And when we got to the U.S., she couldn't really get a job because we didn't have a social security number. So her brain was kind of essentially like all that experience she accumulated was, I don't want to say worthless because that's really demeaning, but, uh, but it wasn't going to help us out then. So she started cleaning houses. And by just pure happenstance, uh, she saw a truck where people who looked Latino just pulled out like different buckets and he goes, Hey, like I'm looking for work. Is your company hiring? And they said, yes. So mom got her first job in the U S cleaning houses, earning maybe like 30 to 40 bucks a day, but it was a way to start learning how to, how that cleaning business worked. 
met some people that were from Costa Rica and just pockets of community that, that we didn't realize we, we had access to. And yeah, just kind of learned a little bit about what it's like to be an immigrant here, just from people who had been here longer than us. Um, our family was really kind and really great, but there were also a few generations removed from that, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was really uh, like as much as family wants to help, we were kind of on our own. But yeah, that's a little bit about how, how life in the U.S. got started for me. Yeah, so there's a lot that you said that I, that I want to dive into. I guess first off, when most people think of the wave of immigrants coming over from Latin America, generally the stereotype is not someone with graduate level education and a master's in finance. Is that a fair assumption or am I off base there? No, I would say that's accurate. Yeah. What's crazy is that uh, the people I think underestimate the power of the American dream. It's, yeah. it's something that means so much to so many people. So, so one you have folks like my mom who, you know, had their masters and, and there's definitely a, a, a good chunk of people like that who, who do have higher level education. There's mm-hmm. some folks who don't even know how to, how to read. Yeah. And I remember when, uh, when my mom started cleaning houses, um, she joined this company named Molly made and, uh, and one day she, she was the driver's cause she had her, she got a driver's license back then before uh, 9-11. It was pretty easy for someone to, to get a U.S. driver's license. It only got difficult after 9-11. So my mom was able to get that license early on. And uh, she, was, she was in charge of driving. She was one of like, the team captains for, for the cleaning company. And she was looking for a direction and she kept telling her one of her, the, her co-pilot, if you will. It's like, hey, like, what does that say? What does that say? She's like, no, no, no it's not here, not here. And my mom realized, wait, like, you don't really know how to read, do you? Um, so it's, it's crazy because you get this melting pot of folks who, who might've had multiple properties in their previous homes. And then they just had to immigrate for violence reasons where they had to escape wherever they were at, um, yeah. which is something that you hear a lot happening from Central America right now, or it might've been folks who just ran out of food and money and need to emigrate to look for a better life who might've not even finished the middle school education. So it's this, this weird melting pot of different life experiences. <laughs> once, once you're undocumented in the U S or once you're an immigrant in the U S you're kind of just a blanket and you kind of start from level one. Um, and, and that's kind of what it, what it turns into. Yeah. And, and so how was that for your mom coming from coming as a, as a highly educated woman, with a really specialized set of skills and then working cleaning houses was it was it a tough transition for her or was it a case where she was here and she had to make do and so that was just what she was going to do i think and this is why i give her so much and the older i get the more i realize how difficult this must have been because talk about like eating humble pie. Yeah. And, uh, and I was, when I was a kid, my mom used to always say like, and it's like little things that when I'm older, I'm like, oh, this makes perfect sense now. But uh, I grew up a lot with, with her saying, when we have to eat dirt, we eat dirt. And when we get to eat caviar, we eat caviar. Right. And, and I think that was her attitude. It was more like, you know what? The past is the past. It's not going to help me here. And I'm starting from baseline zero. And let's just go from there. We yeah. can only go up. You know, so, so I give her a ton of credit. And again, she, like I'm using her. But it's not just her. There's, there's 11, 12 million people with, with similar stories like that. And, and obviously, I'm, I'm Latin American, so I'm using that reference point. But you hear this from folks from Asia. You hear this from, from folks from Eastern Europe. You know, people who are highly educated who start from zero. 
Yeah. And I guess, how was it for you? Because you're coming as an eight-year-old. I'm guessing you didn't know the language or didn't know much of it. And you, I'm guessing your knowledge of American immigration law was probably pretty low at the time. So like, how was that all for you? For me, it was just weird because I wanted to be friends with people, but I didn't speak English. We moved to Branchburg to be with my cousin. And that's, a, that's that area in general mm-hmm. is, is very just, just white. Like there's not very many Latinos in that area. It's fun mm-hmm. in Jersey. It's almost Southern kind of middle, closer to the border of Pennsylvania. Oh yeah. I, I always joke that uh, like people think, oh, like, we're going to move to you as you move to LA, New York, you know, Boston, like Atlanta, like you move to these biggest, like, nope, we're going to go to Branchburg, New Jersey. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I was, I remember being there. They didn't have an ESL class until I got, I got there. Like I was ESL for them, you know? Okay. So there was another kid who, I forget his name right now, but I remember he was from, or his parents were from Mexico and he kind of spoke Spanish, Uh but we only had one class that we shared together. So for the most of the, like the day, I was just sitting by myself, just observing, just observing interactions, trying to figure out what was going on. I remember one time I was in a math class and math, I just generally understood because it's just numbers, you know, math is math. Um, so I remember there was one time, this was maybe like two months into me being in the U.S. in this in this school. It was probably around like Halloween. Um, like the teacher was like, all right, we're going to go over multiplication tables. It's third grade. And she talks about zero. And she's like, does it, what, what I imagine is her saying, like, does anybody know the answer? Does anybody know the answer? And I raised my hand and I was like, zero, because zero in Spanish is zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and this kid just like stood up. I remember his name was Dylan. And he just pointed at me. He goes, he spoke. And... <laughs> And like that, like that summarizes my first year of life in the U.S., which was me trying to figure out how to communicate. You know, like playing soccer. No one played soccer during lunch, which was weird. Yeah. In Columbia, everyone played soccer. You know, I'm like, I have my soccer ball. No one wants to play soccer with me. I'm like, but I have the soccer ball. No one, like we're playing kickball. I don't know how to play kickball. Yeah. You know? so, so it was those little cultural shifts and changes that to me were, were difficult at first. I remember being really frustrated. Like yeah. that's what I remember. I, I remember like – like just being frustrated because like, oh, like I want to make friends. I, I, I miss my home. I miss my family. I think the thing that ends up hurting the most whenever you're an immigrant, and every time I do see immigrants, I, I say, hey, remember the first five years are the hardest. Like, damn, that first phone call where you come home and you hear all your family in the background. Yeah. Like, like that's what gets you. Or like that first birthday that you miss, you know? And that's yeah. how you really get a sense of like, yeah, I'm surrounded by people, but I'm really alone. And, uh, yeah, I, I remember that experience. But other than that, though, it was like it was easier for me to adapt, right? Because I was just a kid. So it was cartoons yeah. or cartoons. And in Colombia, we watched a lot of things. So like the Rugrats used to watch the Rugrats, but now they're in a different language. But I kind of understood. And then just just like like things that for kids is just make are a lot easier to learn. So I think within about a year, I was able to understand Spanish, probably like or English, uh, probably like a year and a half, two years in, I was finally able to speak English. So for me, that transition was a lot easier for my mom's more, much more difficult, right? Because like I said, she's talking to people in Spanish all day. Some of her like, colleagues don't know how to read and write. Um, so she, she's at like the top of her class and she's teaching others how to read and write, which doesn't really give you time for yourself to, mm-hmm. to invest in yourself. Yeah. Did TV for you, did TV kind of help you with your English or what, what, was, what was the most helpful? TV. TV yeah. for sure. I watch, <laughs> I watch so much TV, Dan. Yeah. I, I remember one time, and this is maybe like fourth grade or 
yeah, it must have been like fourth grade because I understood English. Yeah. Uh, I think the teacher was like, how many hours do you guys spend watching TV? And everyone was going like, oh, like, my mom lets me like an hour a day and whatever. I remember I was like six hours and that was perfectly <laughs> normal for me because yeah. I was alone a lot of times. Right? My mom was working. Like I was just there. I was mentioning earlier, there were these little pockets of community. So there was this Costa Rican community that we, we kind of assimilated into. Um, so after school, there was this family who would take me in and uh, they would babysit me and, but like they weren't paying attention to me. So I was just like, Oh, here's a TV. Here's a kid. Here you go. Watch TV, do your homework, watch TV. So I just watched a lot of TV, which again, helped me develop my English. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 that's kind of a loaded question because an old friend of mine actually moved here from Poland when she was like eight or nine and she taught herself English by watching RoboCop. <laughs> which, yeah. I thought was a hell of an introduction. So I actually got in trouble in, I think it was third grade. We moved around a lot, so I'm kind of skipping all over the place here. Yeah. But I moved to another school district in Hillsborough, New Jersey, and it was third grade. And I, I just got into like WWE because I saw kids wearing the shirts. Uh -huh. I was like, oh, I wonder what this is all about. Yeah. And I remember they always say like, on your candy ass. Like that's the thing that they would always say and the TV didn't blur it out. So yeah. I'm thinking to myself, oh, it's normal to say that. So I said that in class one day and I got in trouble for it. I got sent down to the principal and I'm like going to the principal crying because I'm like, I don't know what I did wrong. But that's what happens when you learn English via TV. You learn improper language. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I should have been watching PBS, but nope, just WWF back then was more entertaining. <laughs> yeah. So as we, go, as we go through this conversation too, I'm going to give you some things that I've heard from people on, let's call it the hawkish side of the immigration debate. Yeah. And and I and I'm very interested in hearing your responses and just so you mentioned your mom didn't really have time to learn English or didn't maybe didn't learn English as quickly as you did. And one of the big things you hear from a lot of again people who fall on the more hawkish side of the debate is all about assimilation. And one of the big pet peeves or one of the big sticking points they always have is people who come here and don't learn the language. If you could just respond to that for me, or if you could tell me a little bit about maybe how your mom's experience or what you saw can explain that to people. Yeah. A, it's not for lack of trying. It's not for lack of effort. You go to yeah. any public library on a Tuesday night at seven and just see their ESL classes, you're going to see a bunch of people who are trying to learn. And that's, that's what she did. That's what like she would drag me to. Um, yeah. We would go to these public libraries where they would have classes and she would always do well, like in the written and in the, in the, the reading parts, but it was speaking that for her was, was something difficult to do just because English is a hard language. And the fact that there's articles, the fact that words can mean the same different things and sound exactly the same or like the, the phonetics behind it, it, it's a pretty difficult language to learn. But for her, that, that effort wasn't as easily done because there was no place to really practice. You know, mm -hmm. so if I learned in a year and a half, two years, it might have taken her nine years to feel confident to be able to speak up. And she'll like today she makes mistakes, but she's she's comfortable in her own skin to say I'm speaking the language. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a it's not for lack of trying. B like people understand how expensive it is. Like I grew up living paycheck to paycheck. Like the, the choices came down to does my mom buy gas for the car or does she buy a gallon of milk? Like that's what it, that's like the reality. So how are we supposed to find an extra hundred dollars to do two private lessons a month? Like sometimes we were calling our landlord being like, Hey, can you give us another week extension on rent? Like that, that was the priority. So yes, it's important. 
And of course, English is important. And to the folks that say like, why don't they assemble? Why don't they language? I would say, A, it's very difficult to just, mm -hmm. just set, like A, it's a language that's difficult to B, like survival comes first. So whether it comes to, do I get another part-time job so I can maybe start building savings or do I take an English class? That savings pay is going to take, take priority. Yeah. I find that everyone who says that is monolingual. Yeah. <laughs> everyone I've, I've never met somebody who spoke more than one language who has made that argument to me. And I remember when I was down in Brazil and my, my knowledge of Portuguese is I can talk in it. You, you know what I'm talking about. And I can generally have conversations in it that go to a certain depth. But there are sometimes I just, I, I either lose people or they lose me. Or in some cases, there are subject matters I can't talk about. Like I just, I'm not good at. And oddly enough for me, it's the basic day-to-day -day transactions that are the toughest because those are the toughest ones to practice. And I remember a woman at the store gave me incorrect change. And I walked away and realized after I left that I had incorrect change. And I went back there and I tried to explain that she gave me too much, but I didn't know how to say change. And so I kind of said something to the effect of, I was here, I bought something and the money's too much was pretty much as much as I could say. And she just gave me this, she just looked at me like, you know, just kind of politely trying to pretend like she knew what I was talking about. But the reality is, is she was totally lost. And I never felt more stupid. Yeah. Than, and I never really, I always, I always gave credit to anyone who was in a country where they didn't speak the language, to anyone who sort of had the courage to go and try and tough it out in a place where they didn't understand the language. But I never really understood the difficulty of it and some of the day-to-day -day, for lack of a better word maybe embarrassment that you have to deal with sometimes just i mean not, mm -hmm. no you're right there's a there's a high level of embarrassment to it but i think the other piece of it is no one's giving you feedback on what you're saying Never. Wrong, right like Never. no one's being like hey you know how you said this actually you really should have said like no one's doing that for you so yeah. if, if you're learning wrong you're not having the opportunity to get better at it you know yeah, they're not exactly like, you know, that was nice, but you should have used a subjunctive, a subjunctive tense there. So if I could say, like, the sky is blue, I blew people's minds. Exactly, right? People are, are happy that you tried and you did your best. And it's like, hey, but so like that, especially, in, and that's you as a tourist in a country yes. where people are actively being like, oh, nice, you're American. Thank you for coming here. That's not happening in the United States. No. And, and tell me about that part as well. Like, obviously, you're in an all-white community. There isn't a huge Latin American population. Like, how were you received there? How do you feel you were received there? So my my first school was Branchburg, and again, I think I was one of two two kids in the entire school that was was Latino, and the other kid was was maybe third, fourth generation. I was surprisingly received really well, but I think I think it's a because my teacher, Mrs. Manning, and I, I, I remember her name to this day because that's how impactful. She never made me feel different. Mm -hmm. Like she made me feel like I belonged, which yeah. is really kind of her. Like she would place me with groups of people, like whenever they were doing exam, and she always made sure I was with really nice people. But she, she never made me feel isolated, which I think is it was. I think that's unique to my experience. That's definitely not the experience that 
other people will have, especially being in different communities. That's the first piece of it. The second piece of it is eight-year-olds, they're not racist. Eight-year-olds are pretty kind, you know, because yeah. when you're eight, you're taught to share your food and you're taught to, to ask how other people are doing. And, and I think eight-year-olds operate a lot with empathy. I think if I would have had a very different experience had it come as a 14-year-old or a 13-year-old. But I think I got very lucky in the fact that I was eight in the school district. I think I would have met with a, just different resistance if I'd have been older. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was my first school. My second school uh, was, was a little stranger because this school was actually more diverse. This is Hillsborough, New Jersey. Uh, this, this school was a little more diverse. And uh, my English was a little bit better. Um, but I had a teacher. I forget her name. <laughs> wasn't as, as, uh, as significant of me as Ms. Manning. But uh, I had this teacher who said, by whatever year, like white Americans are not going to be the majority. And in my head, I thought, okay, like that's, that's interesting, but like more diversity. Right. And now I remember like that scene of being a kid. I'm like, Oh, you weren't saying it as a positive. You were talking about it out of fear. So it's, it's weird how sometimes the, like, I think sometimes in, in, in more white communities and let's say the Northeast, people might be more accepting because it's not like, Oh, you're not one of the bad ones. You're one of the good ones. You're one of ours. Yeah. Right. Like it's like, Oh, you're my immigrant. Like it's cool. I got your back because you're my immigrant. Whereas in communities where there might be a little more diversity, but not acceptance or inclusion, it really turns into, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to tolerate, but I'm not going to embrace or give you a heads up. Does that make sense to an extent? Yeah, totally. One of the things you hear a lot of is, you know, I'm okay with people who come here. I just want, I just want people to come here legally. You know, that's the big thing you hear a lot of. What's your, give me your response to that one. I think this is why it's, it's important because most people, they know me and and they don't think, oh, David was, was illegal. David was undocumented. Yeah. I was, you know, I was. And and for a good 14 years, no, almost 16 years of my life, I was terrified, Dan. Like, I was so effing scared. Like, I've been preparing for my mom's death since I was eight. Because at eight-year-old old, she was like, well, David, if I die, this is what you got to do. And I'm like, all right, mom, I'm eight years old. Shouldn't be talking to me about this stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, like, I've been preparing for that since I was eight because, like, that was the fear that you felt. So for me, whenever someone goes, hey, like, I'm okay with the, uh, with the legal ones, not the illegal ones, I think to myself, like, do you know the difference between me and someone who's illegal? Like, do you really know the difference? Because I don't think you do. I think I think it's easy to 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 label because it removes the humanity. Like I got this buddy that I grew up with, and I remember he was in high school, and I remember he was two years older than me. And by the time this kid was maybe like sixteen, I was fourteen. I remember he had a job that started at like five thirty in the morning, and he finished just as the school bus came, mm-hmm. around like seven ish. So he was in school by like seven twenty. And I think his first job was like wiping the floors at a mechanic shop because they would, uh, they would pay him under the table. Yeah. Um, then he went to school and then he finished and then he would go work at a pizzeria, like just doing dishes. And then that would wrap up and then he'd finally go to bed and like super late after doing homework. I'm like, you look at that kid and you think he's legal based on the work that he does. But if you look at his character, like this is one of the hardest working people you will ever meet at 16, you know? Mm-hmm. So I always think it's really important for, because whenever you think of folks who say something like, oh, it's just uh, like, I'm okay with the legal ones. I just don't like the legal ones. What you're telling me is your exposure 
to how complex immigration is is very limited. Like I, I really do think that's what it is, and it's I don't I don't get angry at it. I used to I used to right. If you would have talked to me ten years ago or fifteen mm-hmm. years ago, I would have been livid about when people say things like that. But today I look at it, I'm like, oh, okay, tell me more about that. Why why do you feel that way about undocumented immigrants? Mm-hmm. And and I like to listen to the anger because it's usually really unfounded. Right. Yep. Um, like when people, when I, when they hear me talking, I'm like, and by the way, did you know that I was undocumented at one point? Like there's a real shock of, of in your face. Like that can't be you. Like, Oh, you must be one of the good ones. I'm like, I don't know, but you said illegals. And I was, that was me. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just think it comes from, and I hate using this word, but it, I think it does come from a place of ignorance because if you don't know what you don't know, then you're, you're basically assuming that all undocumented immigrants are MS 13 but in reality, not really. They look more like me than they look like the folks you would see on TV. Well, and that's the funny thing is talking to you. You don't know if you're first generation, second generation, third generation. There's no trace of an accent. You know, there's no trace of, of, of someone whose first language wasn't English. And I don't think that that matches the perception. And I don't think that that matches what a lot of people think of when they think of illegals, you know, and when they think of somebody, when they think of an undocumented immigrant. Yeah. And, and I think it's one of those things where, and again, I think it's people f- use images to feed the narrative that they want to feed. Mm-hmm. Like when you, when you look at some of these hawkish folks who are really anti-immigration or anti-undocumented immigration, like the, the first thing you would ask them to describe, and they would imagine someone who's all maybe like all tatted up who who is is looking for the like easy way out but it that foregoes all the people who are busting their ass just trying to survive you know like hoping that their kids do a little bit better and and really hope that they get to live that american dream and like and and that's me you know I'm, i'm like the i'm the result of my mom's sacrifice but it's one of those things where if all you imagine when you hear undocumented is is that wanted poster then that's then like that's your reality where if you really open up your eyes and you were to run through like the undocumented community, let's say there's 13 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S. 13 million. Yeah. There's not 13 million MS-13 gang members. You know, like it there just isn't. It's just easy to prototype based on inaccuracies or fallacies that aren't really there. And again, that, that's why I think it's important for 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 people like me. And I'm always really, I always really admire. Whenever you see things like, oh, school valedictorian comes out as undocumented. Because that's a level of bravery on a, nine, on a 17, 18 year old that shouldn't really be their responsibility. But that's mm-hmm. what it turns into, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I, but it's important that individuals have that idea of, okay, this is what undocumented immigration looks like because it's, it's more than meets the eye. And again, it's, it's, an, it's, it's, it's completely undermining the actual importance of the issue when you just label it as, oh, that wanted poster that I saw on Fox News at 10. Yeah. Do you feel like the dialogue has changed in the years you've been here or in the past decade? Have you seen it ramp up? Have you seen it get worse? So recently over the past like three years, it's gotten worse, a lot worse. Obama wasn't that great to undocumented immigrants either. You know, he was the chief deportation officer like I think he went two or three X what George Bush did. Um, it, it, it comes in waves. So I remember the first real sense of, of fear 
for me started in 2006. I forget the name of the law, but the House has a law that basically uh, categorized some documented immigration as a criminal offense rather than a civil offense, which it was. It used mm-hmm. to be a civil offense. Um, and then like that's when the, the, the original, this is pre-ICE, this was the National Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, uh, NC something, I should have been in front of me. Um, but that's when the first raids really started to happen. And that's when like the fear really kicked in. And that's when that first wave that I can remember of, oh, you're undocumented. Oh, like those are the bad, like that's when it really started for me. And then it went away and then Obama got elected. And then there was a secure communities initiative that was launched. By, by different uh, states. And secure communities basically gave the police access to ICE databases. Um, so when you hear sanctuary cities, it's, it's actually a direct response to secure communities. Um, and, and that was that second wave, and that was maybe like 2010 and 2012. And then it went away for a while, and then now it's coming back up, but it just, it's been ever since 2016, 2017, 18, 19, and, and definitely more this year, it's, it's really, in my opinion, hit an all-time peak of A, the paranoia, B, the violence associated with it, and three, like the anger, just straight anger and rage that, in my opinion, is really like unfounded. Yeah, I've definitely seen it from a media perspective. I've, I've definitely seen it get a lot worse, and especially the dialogue from right-wing news outlets has been very much that portrayal of a gang member or that portrayal of of the caravans and, and a very unnuanced approach which i think based on what i've learned of the history of immigration here is definitely partly economic you have a lot of folks who are in parts of the country that don't have that are pretty much predominantly white that don't have much contact with the immigrant community who are, who just have had their entire economic base hollowed out. And so they, they've got somebody to be mad about mad at. And then another group of people, like you said, who sort of have that fear of the, you know, the white majority losing its status. Um, And that seems to be a lot of what's driving right now, the, the dialogue and the paranoia. The, the arguments never really change, right? You, you can pull up uh, videos of Lou Dobbs back in CNN in like 2006, and it's going to be the same story that he's saying now. Like yeah. the, the argument never, there's no more, there's no nuance to it. There's no like studies behind it. It's just the same talking points. Just this guy, Tim, go around, that echo chamber is a lot more powerful. And because of the current like economic situation that a lot of people are facing which i think is the real problem but that's that's another day it, it, it just gets it just gets said a lot more loudly and again the aggression level just kicked up yeah so now when did you officially get your citizenship then so yeah. i think there's a misconception of like get in line get in line get in line right like yeah. get your visa right that doesn't exist like that happens when you're a phd when you're when you're in a highly sought out field it doesn't happen when you're the mother of one who cleans houses and just wants to become a citizen like that. There's no path. That path does not exist. So I became a resident first when my mom married my stepdad. And mm-hmm. I was curious because I, this is back in the days where AIM was like what kids did. Right. So just AIM. Yeah. Uh, and I was talking to my friend Lisa and I'm like, Oh, what are you up to? And she goes, Oh, I'm just helping my, my parents friend like update his like dating profile on Yahoo singles or whatever. Um, and I'm like, oh, my mom's single. We should set them up. And lo and behold, they got married. And this was in 2007 mm-hmm. or 2008 was when they got married. 
And that's really the day my life changed because like I remember in high school, they were like, oh, who's going to go to college? And like everyone raised their hand but me because I, I didn't know that was an option that I had. Mm-hmm. Like to me, my future was going to be, I was going to try to get a job doing lawn maintenance or, or hardscaping because that's where you get paid like 25 an hour. So that was, that was kind of my career, just working in, under the sun and just, you know, move rocks, try to become a hardscaper. And, and there's no shame in that. Like that's, that's, a, that's a good way to put food on the table. And that was my hope because I never thought that I would have any of the opportunities that I actually had because of a eight digit uh, number, mm-hmm. you know, sorry, nine digit, nine digit number, which is social security. Um, so once my mom married Donnie, my, my stepfather, that, that all changed. And I was able to get my driver's permit, go to college, you know, and I became a citizen in 2014. Uh, that's when I officially became a citizen. So for me being a resident, the U.S. resident with the green card, to me being a citizen, that time window was four years wow, you know, or five years. It was the first, like, it was the first, let's call it 10 years of being in the U.S., uh, first eight years of being in the U.S. that I was really without papers or documents. And the only way to actually get that document is by marrying a U.S. citizen or a resident. So if your mom hadn't gotten remarried, theoretically, you would have gotten into landscaping or hardscaping. And then in theory, if you were in the country long enough, let's say you either got married or, or had children or what have you, but let's say just we'll go theoretically, let's say the woman you married was also undocumented then the first generation of American citizens in your family would have been your kids, correct? Exactly. Yeah. And is that a common, is that a more common story or is your story more common? That's a more common story. A few things, there's a little more nuance to it than that because of DACA now. Yeah. Uh, different action for childhood arrivals. Mm-hmm. Um, that I would have been a DACA kid. Um, so Got it. I would, have, I would have been able to, to, but again, that, that opens up its own can of worms, right? Cause that's the thing that Trump's holding over, uh, as as his his card, like you have this database of people who are undocumented immigrants, where ICE knows where they are. Yeah, like they're identifiable. They have their fingerprints, you know. So when when I when DACA became a thing, I remember half of the immigrant community was like, "Yes, this is progress. This is a step in the right direction." The other half was, "Hold on, this is a trap," because now they know who you are. Now they can come get you anytime. And who's to say who's right? Because we've seen both of those sides of the coin play out. Yeah. Um, but let's put that aside. Then yeah. You're right. Like the only way that I could have, the only way that I could have gotten my papers on my own would have been through marriage through a U.S. citizen. Mm-hmm. And if I hadn't, then my kids would have been the first ones in the U.S. who would have actually been uh, U.S. citizens or who would have had an opportunity to become one. Got it. And then, and then I would have had to wait another 18 years and possibly 10 years over that. So let's say 25 years while the, the child is able to then sponsor his or her parents, you yeah. know, because you need to have a job, you need to have income. You can't just say, oh, I'm 18, I'm gonna sponsor my dad and my mom. No, you can't do that, because how are you gonna prove out that you can sustain that, that, those mouths, yeah. you know? So it's, again, it's not as easy as, as one would think. Yeah, and so I guess this is a good time for you to tell everyone listening. So obviously when you were getting out of high school, your plan was to become a hardscaper or a landscaper. So what is it that you do for a living now? So I actually work at a pretty amazing software company uh, where I was blessed enough to be one of the top reps a few years in a row. Uh-huh. Like, like Dan, like 
I, when I say that I'm, I am the American dream, like I am, you yeah. know, like I was able to buy, uh, my own condo, uh, and I don't have to worry about whether I can put food on the table and pay the mortgage or get gas. I was able to help the company I work for, uh, open up an office in another country. And, and I'm just grateful every day that I get to do something, uh, with my life that I, like, I'm not supposed to be here. You know what I mean? Like I'm not supposed yeah to have these opportunities, but I'm, I'm blessed enough that I can do it. And, and if anything, I just hope that goes to show, like you don't know what someone's capable of until you give them the opportunity to, to run with it. Yeah. So I'm going to end this conversation with a math problem for you. Okay. Okay. It's a math problem. So obviously one of the big topics or one of the big uh, things that comes up in the immigration conversation is economic, right? Mm -hmm. and is uh, the impact that undocumented immigrants have on the system, right? So given the system is funded by taxes, would you contribute more to the tax base being a hardscaper paid under the table or in your current position? So because of the way things are added and because of the opportunities given to me, I would have probably contributed more percentage of my income to taxes as an undocumented hardscaper. Really? Um, just because you blew my yeah, mind. That's not because, the answer like, I was expecting at all. I thought I was throwing up a loaded well, question. No, keep, keep going. This is better. <laughs> this yeah. is way better. So like on a percentage of income. So, so check that, right? Oh, like, percentage. Now of I have, okay, go, yeah, but go on. Yeah. So yeah, I'm talking about percentage of income. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause it's two things, right? Like now as a, now as a U.S. citizen, like obviously like my net, I can, I provide a lot more in taxes, but as an undocumented immigrant, there's this thing that you get, it's called an ITIN, an individual taxpayer account yeah. uh, or ITIN number, um, individual taxpayer account number. So that's something that the IRS uses for you to pay taxes, but you're not getting any benefits, you know? So that idea of um, Medicare, non-existent to undocumented immigrants, but as an undocumented immigrant, you're paying into that. Uh, things like sales taxes, you know, you're paying into that. You're actually paying more because you have rent and you can't necessarily own, so you can't use your mortgage and the interest on that mortgage to deduce from your income tax, you can't do that. So as an undocumented immigrant, you actually end up giving a lot more of your, your income to the government without getting anything in return from a, as a percentage. Wow, man. Yeah. So. I thought I was throwing up just a total softball question and you totally went in the opposite direction. But arguably too, to get at the answer that I was leading the witness to, yeah. arguably now your earning potential and by that your contribution to the tax base is probably larger on a monetary level. Is that fair to say? Of course. Of yeah. course. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, but, um, yeah, yes, it's, it's, it's astronomical, the difference that having a nine-digit number can make. And you would, when you look at it just mathematically, you would say that, yes, I am a more productive member of society because I am paying a lot more into, into the different institutions than, than I would be otherwise. So, so, yes, in terms of potential, I'm obviously now being able to, to provide a lot or to give more into the IRS because I, I do have a lot more earning potential. But as a percentage of income, as an undocumented immigrant, I would have paid a lot more. That's crazy. That yeah. is absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, it's well, really expensive to be poor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thanks again for taking the time to talk. I mean, I learned a lot. You blew my mind at the end. I'm hoping <laughs> I'm hoping you blew everybody else's mind who's listening to this. And 
everybody can talk to me about how I led the witness with that last question, but they can all suck it because you went the exact opposite direction. So thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, and, and again, thank you for having me. And, and if anyone ever wants to talk more about immigration or hear more, I'm always happy to share. I'm a pretty open book. So whatever else you want to know, I'm, I'm happy to, to tell you. Yeah, dude, definitely. Thank you again. No problem. So that was David. And I think it's fair to say that he and his mom don't exactly fit the image that we're fed of what an undocumented immigrant looks like. I think thanks to the privilege of being born American, I think for me and other people like me, it's really tough to understand how someone with a master's in finance would move to another country where they don't speak the language to make a subsistence live in cleaning houses. But there she is. You know, there are two things that I've seen that are consistent with the children of those who've immigrated from poorer countries. And number one is that their parents constantly beat into their heads how lucky they are to be here. And number two, they watch the remarkable work ethic of their parents and how much they have to struggle to put food on the table. And that work ethic plus the opportunities they get being born into the United States turn into great things when they reach working age. And I think of my own dad, whose father was a bricklayer and you know he applied the same work ethic he learned building walls and chimneys with his dad into practicing law and david for his part became a software sales manager and to give you an idea you know the data on ZipRecruiter says that the average pay for someone in his field in boston where he lives is 125,000 per year so sorry david don't mean to send everybody digging into your finances, but that's just live on the web. Anybody can see it. One of the lines that he said that really stuck out to me too is like, you know, David said he shouldn't be here. And I really have to ask, how do we change the laws to get more Davids? And one of the things Professor Wong mentioned in episode one was how there's a need for immigration reform in the last episode. And I can't help but think that one that's focused on rich, skilled labor is really going to rob us of the people who come here who are really hungry for more. And one of the things I think that makes this country unique amongst all others, and I've had the chance to work with companies all over the world, is that every American comes from a bloodline that started when somebody decided to leave the comfort of their home to find a better version of life here. And, you know, part of the dynamism, I think, of this country and its economy is the fact that there are people who come here and look at all the things we take for granted and see nothing but opportunity. And when you have people willing to outwork you, it really keeps you on your toes. And I think there's a certain fearlessness and work ethic that our immigrant history brings to American culture. That's really who we are. And I'm worried that we're going to lose that if we start focusing on policies that scare off people from poorer countries in favor of those from rich European, let's face it, white nations. I don't know what that system looks like, but I'd be interested in your thoughts. So feel free to swing by Unpundit. Again, U-N-P-U-N-D dot I-T. Eventually, I'm going to get sick of saying it, and I'm just going to buy you don't have to yell.com from whoever's squatting on it. But for now, we all have to suffer. Thanks for listening. This is Dan Sally signing off.